You are listening to the We Can Make a Difference podcast. Hello and welcome to the We Can Make a Difference podcast. Some of the biggest issues facing Gen Zers today are mental health and well-being, racial equity, access to equal opportunities, social justice, and the environment. Come join me as I explore how we can tackle these issues by talking to experts in the field who have made a difference. Let's learn from them so we can make a difference too. I'm your host, Anish Prasad, and with me today is Rebecca Bratspies. Rebecca, thank you for joining me today. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Oh, by the way, it's Bratspies, Rebecca Bratspies. Oh, I'm sorry about that. No I'll worries. Make sure, I'm going to make that say Thank you. All right, so to start, could you tell us a little bit more about what you do? Sure. I'm a law professor, and um, I work at City University School of Law, CUNY School of Law. We're a public law school in New York City, and we are uh, a law school dedicated entirely to public interest law, to law in the service of human needs. I also run the Center for Urban Environmental Reform, which is a, a learning and service center at the law school that works with communities that are facing environmental justice challenges and helps them advocate for um, solutions. Yeah. So what inspired you to become a lawyer and how did you become passionate about environmental justice and human rights issues? Well, I was actually going to become a scientist. Um, I, In fact, I was in grad school studying science and I realized that what interested me more were the social implications of science and how um, people in their lived environment were affected by things like pollution and by technological change. And so once I realized that that's really what I was interested in, I thought law would be a way for me to, uh, to work in that sphere to try to make a difference. Yeah, so... Just building off of that, what do you think the role of legislation and policy is in promoting environmental justice and creating more sustainable communities? Well, it's an ugly fact that most of the pollution that people experience is entirely legal. Um, law has not been our friend in terms of protecting the environment and particularly has not been our friend in promoting environmental justice. I think that's starting to change. Um, I think it's changing on the state level in many states, and it's changing on the federal level because the the current administration has made environmental justice a centerpiece of its vision for what it means to govern the country and to take care that the law be faithfully executed. We have a long way to go, that's for sure. Yeah, so do you think legislation is more important than, I guess, you know, advocacy and like the stuff that society can do as a whole? Do you think legislation is more important? I don't think those are different things. Um, I think we get legislation that's about protecting people's health and, and protecting the environment through advocacy, through people saying these are our priorities, because the default is that corporations do whatever they want and corporations don't care about people. They care about short term gain for their stockholders. And that's all they care about. So it's up to all of us to push back on that and say, no, you can't. You don't have unfettered freedom to do whatever you think will make you the most profit in the short term because there are other values. There are values about human rights. There are values about protecting the environment. There are values about having a planet in the future and that and for young people having good paying jobs. And that's the role of legislation and regulation is to create a framework within which 
we all operate that ensures that we get that those values um, are considered and given weight. Yeah. So I guess just looking at it from the United States, what does our legislation lack that results in so much? You know, we are one of the highest emitters in the world. So what does our legislation lack that allows this to keep happening every year? We have a significant percentage of our elected officials who don't think climate change is happening or if it is or if they do think it's happening, don't think it's a problem. We need new people in those jobs. We need people to vote. And we need people to vote in their interest, which means to think about who is going to protect my family, who's going to protect my children, who's going to protect the place that I live and care about things beyond campaign donations and being reelected. Yeah. So as a society, as a society, what can we do to, you know, continue to help solve the issue of, you know, uh, emissions and climate change? Well, there are, Individual things we can do and systemic things we can do. On the individual basis, we all make choices every day. And those choices can either be climate friendly or not. Um, and, you know, to the extent that everybody tries to minimize their use of fossil fuels, to the extent that people, um, you know, compost their garbage, that makes a big difference. It, it really does. I mean, it's not about necessarily about individual actions, right? We need systemic change. But as we're working for systemic change, we as individuals can also make a big difference. But the biggest thing we need to do is to push our elected officials to take this crisis seriously and to do things about it. And if they won't, to replace them with people who will. So, you know, your listeners are just about at the age where they're starting to be eligible to vote. It is so important that you vote. Don't let anybody tell you that they're all the same because they're not. You know, you may be choosing between two candidates that you don't love, but which one do you think is going to make choices that are going to be better for the planet, for your future, and for building a just society? Because there are always choices. Yeah. And obviously you are also professors. So what do you think the role of education is in addressing these issues in the future? Well, I think that's why we're seeing such a huge pushback um, and attempts to control education because education, particularly about how we got here, right? About our history, about racial injustice, about environmental injustice, makes people want to do things to change the status quo. And so we're seeing a massive effort to prevent people from learning about those things in the idea that that will keep people ignorant and passive. Um, education is critical. Ask questions, learn things. There's so much to learn. Um, I mean, you know, I consider myself a learner. I'm learning all the time. I may have a lot of degrees. I may have been teaching for decades, but I'm still learning every day. Yeah. Um, now, you also um, have written some books in the past. So I was just wondering, what inspired you to write your comic theme books, Maya's Lot and Venus Plant? Yeah. So I um, am the editor I, of uh, Environmental Justice Comic Book Series. It is freely available online for download. You can go to my website, uh, which is just my name, RebeccaBratsby's.com, and anybody can download them for any non-commercial purpose. I work with an incredibly talented comic book artist named Charlie LaGreca Velasco, and he's the artist for all the books. Um, our goal was in, in creating this series was to reach a new generation of 
uh, people who are much more comfortable with visual forms of learning and to take sort of environmental justice, environmental law, and environmental science out of this stuffy academic setting and talk to young people about what does this mean for where you live and what does this mean for what you could do to make things better in your own community now, today? Yeah. Um, and you also recently published a comic book called We All Count, and that focuses on helping students educate their families about the census. So why is this topic important to you and why did you choose to create a book on this topic? Oh, we created that book during um, during the COVID lockdown, um, right? It was I was really worried about what was going to happen with the census. The Trump administration was trying the best that it could to uh, minimize participation of people of color in the census. They really were trying to, to have an illegitimate census that would overcount white people and undercount everybody else. And the census matters because not only is that how we distribute hundreds of millions of dollars of federal aid, but it also is how we distribute political representation. So our House of Representatives gets readjusted after every census and people gain or lose representation based on the count. And so there was a lot of misinformation about the census at the time. Um, people were afraid, for example, people who maybe had relatives who were uh, undocumented were afraid that by participating in the census, they might put people in jeopardy. Um, they were afraid that... Um, information we shared with law enforcement. So what we what we were trying to do with that very short comic was to help people understand, first of all, how important the census is for the communities that people live in, um, but also how safe it was to participate in the census and how that yeah, it was a, it's a federal crime punishable by massive fines and time in jail to share that census information with law enforcement or with anyone else. So we were trying to sort of help people feel comfortable. And we also made a, a coloring book that was distributed um, as part of mutual aid here in New York City. And we had part of it in multiple languages. Um, not all of it, but most of it's just in English, but a lot of it was translated into seven or eight languages to try to reach really hard to count communities. Yeah, and I think in a lot of the issues that we've spoken about on, on this episode so far, we've talked, the government sort of come into play a lot. So do you think that a lot, of a lot of the societal issues that are present in our country are down to some, like, government negligence, I guess? Um, I don't know that I would say government negligence. I think that our governments have been tremendously influenced by uh, corporate money. The Supreme Court decided a case... Um, that allows unlimited um, corporate contributions to campaigns. And that puts people who are elected in a really hard position because if they don't take corporate money, their opponents will. So even if you're like a really public-minded, public-spirited elected official, you know that you're going to face off against somebody who is willing to take you know, endless streams of money. Um, and that's, I think, the biggest problem that we have is that our democracy is being corrupted and it's being corrupted by money, unaccountable, dark money from people who don't care about families, who don't care about the environment and don't care about justice. And, you know, the one thing that, that money can't do and that corporations can't do is vote. 
And the fact is that people who care about these issues, every survey shows, dramatically outweigh um, the people who, who think that we're doing the status quo is fine. If people show up and vote, things will change. And in the beginning of the episode, you spoke about mm-hmm. the Center of Urban Environmental Reform. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit more about that and the work you do? I'd be delighted. Um, so one of the things that we do is we run workshops in public schools here in New York City based on the comic books we were talking about. So we'll go into a school and um, and the students will identify what they consider to be their environmental justice priority in their community. And then we'll help them create a campaign to try to change whatever it is. Um, Sometimes it's bus idling outside the schools. Sometimes it's litter. Once it was subway noise. Um, You know, whatever the students think is their priority in terms of building a more just environment for them to live, play, and learn in. And and we've had a lot of success with that. And I think we've built a, a... you know, a, a cadre of people who view themselves as environmental leaders and who have the tools necessary to advocate for change in their communities. We also work with adults with community groups. Uh, I get calls all the time saying, hey, I have a problem with the um, the waste transfer station in my neighborhood or their, the trucks on the highway um, or, you know, whatever it is. And so we'll try to help communities identify who has who has some kind of authority over the problem that they're dealing with and what kind of a campaign might um, get that authority to be used in a fashion that would make things better. And this kind of goes back to the point about education. So mm-hmm. you think the American education system needs to include more about climate change and its repercussions? Um, yeah, yeah, I really do. Um, you know, and that goes back to there's a reason that people are trying to take this out of uh, the school curriculums. And that reason has nothing to do with good educational practices and has everything to do with trying to keep people in ignorance of this, the challenges that we face. Um, the thing about climate change is that it it is relevant to so many different um, subjects that people are learning in school. You know, there's incredible climate literature that people can read in English classes. Uh, the history of how we got here and uh, the way that um, fossil fuel extraction happened both in the United States and around the world um, is, you know, an important thing to study and comes up like my, I have a kid who just finished a push, right. And they learned about standard oil and antitrust. Um, they learned a lot of things that are deeply relevant to the situation we find ourselves in today. Obviously, science class, this is relevant, even in art class. We made these environmental justice comic books. People can, you know, express their concerns and their emotions through art and learn that way as well. Yeah. um, So what is the impact you hope to make with your Center of um, Urban Environmental Reform and all your books? What is the impact you hope to make? So the, I mean, you know, I'm a scholar. Um, I spend a lot of time in scholarly dialogue trying to add to the sum of human knowledge. Um, and I'm hoping to do that with the center as well, but I'm also trying to do something much more practical with the center. And that is to give people tools that they can use in their daily lives and to help people understand how to be an advocate in a legal system, how to navigate legal systems and regulatory systems that seem impenetrable 
and that are really set up to um, to disadvantage individuals and uh, low resource communities. Because doing that is a way to help even the scales a little bit. Yeah. Um, and as a college professor yourself, um, what are your thoughts on the recent Supreme Court ruling of affirmative action? So as a lawyer, I think it's a shocking decision in terms of its disregard, not only for precedent, but its disregard for the purpose of the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment was adopted at a time when the country was trying to address the profound harms from slavery. And there's no way to do that without paying attention to who was harmed. And to suggest that the 14th Amendment requires us to be race blind is to ignore history and to ignore the purpose of the 14th Amendment, which was to rectify racial discrimination and um, and has you know been expanded to be about ethnic discrimination and gender discrimination. I think the, the decision was a travesty and it is going to be interesting, I guess, is you know, in, in quotes, interesting to see what happens next. Um, I am deeply concerned about what's going to happen to uh, college admissions. I think that the court engaged with a caricature of affirmative action. Affirmative action has always been about recognizing the barriers that are in the path of uh, black and brown Americans and not in the path of white Americans. And um, I think I'm going to stop there because I could rant about that for as much time as you have. Yeah. Um, so do you think, because I guess the argument I've been seeing a lot is that maybe it should be based more off income rather than race, because there are some African-Americans who obviously don't have those barriers that many of them do. So do you think, do you, how would you respond to that argument, I guess? Um, I think that I have never, I'm a white woman, I have never had to sit my child down and tell them how to survive an encounter with the police. Every single Black parent I know, regardless of how much money they have, has had to have that conversation with their child. And when you're talking about privilege in our society, Quite frankly, that's the only privilege that matters. I'm confident, I mean, relatively confident that the guns that my tax dollars pay for are not going to be used to randomly kill my child. Um, you know, when I go into a store, no one follows me around to see if I'm stealing. Um, nobody, when I went to college, I came from a modest background. Um, I went to a public school in a steel town and not that many kids that I went to, to, to high school with went on to college. But when I walked onto that college campus, nobody asked me if I, nobody assumed I didn't belong. And the fact is that especially for black students and Latinx students, but for students of color in general, they're faced with those things all the time. They're followed in stores they're harassed by the police and people treat them as though they don't belong on college campuses. And the stress from that interferes with learning. 
So I guess what as a society can we do to sort of shut down these stereotypes that are put towards minority groups like, you know, Latinos, brown people, African-Americans? Well, I I think they're breaking down. Um, I I am uh, the more I see of your generation, quite frankly, the more optimistic I am, because you folks have grown up in a uh, my, my teenager is always saying to me, well, you know, when I was born, a black man was president. It never occurred to me that that was special in any fashion. Whereas for people my age, that was tremendously, you know, it uh, uh, seemed like a huge accomplishment and, and milestone, as opposed to it just being life. Um, you know, and I think that I've seen tremendous change in my lifetime. We have a long way to go, but, uh, you know, as, um, as the Reverend Martin Luther King said, the arc of, of the universe bends towards freedom. It needs to bend faster, but, you know, I, I, I don't know. I wish I had better things to say. I wish that there like, was some formula I could give, but I think, you know, talk to people who are different than you. Um, sit down at lunch with somebody who you don't know. Don't be afraid of other people. We're all on this planet together. Everybody is, you know, wants a good life for themselves and their family. And we all have that in common. Yeah. Um, and lastly, before we close out, what advice do you have for Gen Zers like myself who want to make a difference, but just don't know where to start? Well, you're already making a difference. I mean, I'm so impressed that you uh, started this podcast. Um, you know, I think young people make a difference every day just by being here, just by being yourselves and being open to the world and respecting each other and not thinking it's weird to ask somebody's pronouns and, um, you know, having friends who are different than yourself. But the biggest thing that people can do to make a difference is to vote and to talk to people about why voting matters. And because, you know, the, the voting rates are so low, like, uh, poll after poll shows that climate is one of the biggest priorities that people across this country have. Racial justice is one of the biggest priorities that people across this country has. But if you don't show up at the polls, the people who don't care have get to control what happens. Because many of them vote. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we close out? Um, oh, yeah. It's just one thing I want to mention that for anybody who is interested, I just wrote a book, uh, another book about New York City, um, about history called Naming Gotham, the uh, villains, rogues and heroes behind New York place names. And what I do in that is it's uh, each chapter is pretty short and it uses a, a person that things are named for. Like, um, for example, the Major Deegan Expressway runs past Yankee Stadium. So there's a chapter on who on earth was Major Deegan? Everybody takes the Major Deegan, but no one has a clue who the guy was. And yet he's sort of an interesting figure in New York history. And there's so many people like that, like Kosciuszko. There's a bridge here in New York called the Kosciuszko Bridge. And Kosciuszko was a uh, revolutionary war hero, and he was an anti-slavery advocate. He was passionate about ending slavery in the United States. So, you know, learning about him or learning about uh, William Jennings Bryan, who Bryan Park is named after, show us that these concerns for racial justice have existed as long as this country has existed. And, you know, it's, um, 
it's part of our history. It's part of who we are. And we can learn from that and do so much to, to build a better world. Yeah, and all of your information will be linked in the episode description. So anyone listening, you can check that out. Um, right. But yeah, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It was really nice talking with you. And um, I can't wait to see what you do. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. See you next episode.